Would you join me as I pray this morning? Father, we recognize at various times each of us has faced with the, the reality of our weaknesses. And there are times when we feel strong and capable and self-reliant, but there's times when we get sick or get hurt or something happens that we cannot control and we realize just how weak we really are. And we realize how needy we are. And it's in times like this that it's such a comfort and assurance to know that you are strong. God, you are not dependent like we are. You are not prone to illness or weakness or trials or uncertainty like we are. In times like this, it's such a comfort for us to remember that you know our frame, that you remember that we are only dust. We are just little dusty creatures whose days are like grass. We flourish for a time like flowers in the field and then the wind passes over it and it's gone and forgotten. But you have established your throne in the heavens Your kingdom rules over all, over all time and all places and all circumstances. And your love is from everlasting to everlasting. You are eternal and never changing. We are weak and you are strong. And Father, at various times, many times, each of us is faced with the reality of our sinfulness. We're not just weak physically, but also morally. Each of us sins against you every day. Sometimes we defiantly ignore your will as you've clearly revealed to us in your word. Sometimes we genuinely think we're doing the right thing when actually we're doing the wrong thing. Even our best actions are tainted with some measure of sin. And in times like this, it's such a comfort to know that you are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's a blessing to know that you do not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. Instead, you show us compassion like a father shows compassion to his children. You take away our sin as far as the east is from the west. That far do you remove our transgressions from us. And what a joy it is, God, to be forgiven. And so this morning we admit our weaknesses to you and we confess our sins and our sinfulness. And we freely acknowledge the vast and infinite chasm between ourselves and you, between weak, sinful human beings and a perfectly holy, omnipotent God. And we say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, and who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. Father, we want to give you thanks for your continued good gifts to us. Father, we thank you that our church has a benevolence ministry that's able to extend help to those in need. Thank you for allowing so many of us to be blessed by that ministry and to be a blessing to others through that ministry. And I pray that as we sometimes provide funds and sometimes we provide meals and sometimes provide other gifts, that you would help and comfort your people. I pray that we would count it a joy to be able to provide these physical and financial gifts of your care for us. And God, we thank you for the way you provide for the financial needs of our church. We thank you for your continued provision for us. And we want to acknowledge that you are the one who ultimately gives all good gifts. And you've provided richly for us. 
So we're able to joyfully give back a portion to you. It's, it's our pleasure. It's, it's our joy. It's our worship to you. Father, we also thank you this morning for our graduates. We do pray for Chloe and we ask for wisdom for her as she has the opportunity to work at Cascade Summer Camp. And we thank you for supplying for her all that she's needed thus far through, through high school. And we do ask now for strength and wisdom and courage for the next steps of life. May she seek wisdom in this and seek others' input in her life to make wise decisions. We thank you and praise you for what you've done in Trevor's life, Trevor Curley. And we thank you for giving him the strength to finish his associate's degree. And now you've allowed him to continue studies at Liberty. And so we do ask for clarity and for endurance. We pray for his heart as he seeks to balance studying your word and in, in, in his personal devotions, but also studying for, for the classes. May he not treat the Bible like a textbook. May he love it and love studying it and love applying it to his life. Now we pray for Anna. We thank you for allowing her to attend to come a Baptist and finish there and finish well. And we do pray for her as she heads to Mexico soon to serve with Radius and International and with missionaries there. And we ask that we as a church family can stand behind her. Not only prayerfully, but stand behind her financially to send her out. And I do pray for her mom and dad. You give, her, give them peace as they send her to another country. They can release her and trust you. And God, we thank you for Joanna. We praise you, God, for a great finish to her high school career. And, and now the exciting venture into Seattle U. And we ask for grace. We thank you for the home that she grew up in, the schooling that she's been a part of. And now this next step as she heads into, uh, to me, a very difficult field, but I'm sure for her a very exciting field. And we do ask for strength in that. Strength to, to be faithful to you. To find a church that she can to, uh, find her roots and to love sitting under the, the preaching of your word and to find friends there at school that, that encourage her. But I pray that you would help her to be a, a good witness to those that she comes in contact with. Father, we do thank you for the fathers in our church family in this day. We thank you for their hard work to serve their families and their dedication to know and to serve you, God. And we do ask for grace and strength for them. Help them to love you and to train their kids to love you as well. We give them peace to know that they're not God. They're called to serve their wives and their kids, but they're not called to save them. Help them to pray for their, for their kids and for their families and help them to be faithful. We thank you. Father, so much that we can come to your throne with these needs. And we pray that you'd be honored and glorified as we continue to sing and as we sit under the preaching of your word. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 12. It's been over... 75 years now that William Lawrence wrote this. Observers in the tail of our ship saw a giant ball of fire rise as though from the bowels of the earth, belching forth enormous white smoke rings. This was just a small part of the description of what must have been for the sights viewed by humans in the destruction of Nagasaki, Japan by a single atomic bomb 
on August 9th, 1945. A few people are still alive who actually witnessed that sight on that day. A more terrifying sight can hardly be imagined. Winston Churchill wondered that day if the future would hold measureless havoc upon the entire globe. It hasn't yet. But Peter has described an even more awe-inspiring sight. Instead of the localized destruction of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, Peter prophesied in his letter, 2 Peter 3, of the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He warned the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Some of the skeptics in Peter's day may have thought that God couldn't do this. In in the ancient world, many people had an idea there were many gods, none of whom was the creator of the world. None of these ancient ideas presented God as being all-powerful. But Peter was ready with replies to these scoffers. He reminds them in chapter 3, verse 5, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. So if God made the world... He can certainly be able to unmake it as well. Others may have thought, well, perhaps God is able to do this, but he wouldn't. Would he? I think a lot of people feel that way today. God is the old man upstairs or the heavenly grandfather. Surely he wouldn't condemn those very creatures that he created in his own image, would he? He wouldn't destroy this world, would he? Peter told these early Christians that God would judge the world. There is precedent. Peter mentions in 3.6 that God had judged the earth before in the flood. And now he says, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until that day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Yet it hasn't happened yet. And as the days go by, one after another, many begin to think like the false teachers in that first century, that because it hasn't happened yet, it will never happen. Day after day, the sun rises and the sun sets. And we are uh, lulled into an implied assumption that the end will not come. We are fooled into thinking that we are promised tomorrow's sunrise. But the Bible speaks differently. Peter says again in 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, his some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God's not slow. He hasn't checked out of this world. Instead, God is patient. God's patience is unfathomable to us as humans. And yet God is faithful to his word. When judgment comes, it will come suddenly. It will come as a thief comes. And you might be lulled into thinking that this earth and all that is offering to you is, the, is it. Is this all we're going to have? And you've been deceived. You might think that you're invincible. I mean, you wouldn't say it out loud, but you live as if you always be alive. And that's not true either. Just do me a favor right now in this moment, okay? A little interaction, how's that? Take your hand and stick it in front of your eyes. I can see you all, so I know if you're going to obey or not. (laughs) And look at that. Underneath the skin and the muscles 
There's a skeleton. Boy, this is a morbid way to start a sermon, huh? Someday, you will lay in a coffin in the ground and all will be as a skeleton. Maybe today you can just stare at your hand and think that one day my time on earth will be over. The end is coming. And any day your appointment will be with God. And he will not forget his promises. And as a Christian standing before you, I can be joyful, expectant of the reception that I will receive by God. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, your reception will not be the same. Friends, Jesus is coming back. And that's the thrust of this message. That's the thrust of this passage, and that's my main idea. So if you're going to write down anything or just log it away in your head, Jesus is coming back in any hour, so be ready. That's it. That's the point. That's what we're going to look at here in Luke chapter 12. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Luke chapter 12, starting verse 35. If you don't have a Bible, we have a stack in the back. We'd love for you to grab one and take it as your own. We're going to be in the Word this morning. As I've said the last few months, the second half of Luke's gospel moves us closer and closer to Jerusalem. Luke is moving us closer to the cross. And Jesus will spend more and more time preparing his disciples for life between his departure and his return and glory and judgment. And he'll, he'll prepare us to, to live in the already and not yet. So here's, here's point number one. We'll walk through that here. I have three points this morning. The first one, the king is coming. Stay awake. The king is coming. Stay awake. Look at verse 35. I'm going to break up this verse a, a little bit. He first says, stay dressed for action. Just that phrase right there. Stay dressed for action. Jesus is warning this passage and beginning with an advice that was originally given to the people to go on a journey to follow God. And we see this same instruction in the book of Exodus. Before the people left Egypt, the people needed to be properly dressed and ready for action in the book of Exodus when God gave them instruction for the Passover meal. And we've seen Luke already highlight and reference Exodus many times. He wants us to look back into the Old Testament to see again this, this foundation that God's given. And here he gives us again another opportunity to go back to Exodus. Exodus 12, 11, God's given instruction to the Israelites. And he says, in this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. That's how they were to eat. And you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. They should be prepared to eat that meal already dressed for the journey so that they could be up and off at a moment's notice. And the point was that their attachment was to God and not to this world. And Jesus is making the same argument here in verse 35. The King James Version says, let your loins be girded about. And in the old ancient, ancient Near East, the servants in a wealthy man's house usually wore long flowing robes. These are their loins. And these robes, although ornate and beautiful, weren't particularly functional though. If a person wanted to ready himself for action, he would put on a belt around his robe and then pull up that, that robe, freeing his legs. So Jesus is telling people that, that now is the time to put on their belts, their, to gird their loins, to be prepared and to keep their lamps burning. He's, he's calling for vigilance. 
He's calling for an amazing readiness. I mean, modern work days require that we tie our shoes before we go to work, before leaving the house, and we roll up our sleeves where we're going to work, right? We, we prepare ourselves for what we're going to do. We, we know what it means to be prepared for work. Friends, do you know what it means to be prepared for eternity? Are you living in such a way that you're ready to leave this world at a moment's notice? Or are you so tied to this place? Are you dressed for action, Jesus is saying. And then he says in verse, or you get next phrase there, and keep your lamps burning. People would normally put out their lamps at bedtime to conserve oil, but someone who was keeping watch would keep their lamps burning. And a good servant would tend the flame of his oil lamp so that when the master would return, he could light the way home. Kent Hughes in his, in his commentary says, What a lovely scene greeted the returning master. Warm light streamed from the windows, breathless, smiling, eager servants bearing shining lamps gathered at the door, and no doubt there was a choice snack on the table, which would be peanut butter cookies and milk. Right, that's the best snack to come home to at night. They want to keep their master out in the dark, but they're prepared to welcome him home. And then he says in verse 36, And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. These first century wedding festivities frequently lasted for at least a week or longer, and so you didn't know precisely when the master would come home and the party would finish. And Jesus is instructing them that they are to be prepared at any moment. When I was a teenager and my parents would leave the house, gone for a period of time, and instruct me to make sure I clean up after myself uh, in order the home to be back where it should be, what do you think I should do when they're gone? Should I stare out the window, just waiting for them to return, and then hustle the 30 seconds to tell them to pull in the driveway? Or should I be ready? Should I, should I neglect the work and just look and see if they're coming? Or should I be prepared and do the work? And so I believe Jesus isn't saying stare out the window and look for me. He's saying be prepared. Be ready. So that when I come, you're, you're ready to go. To live in such a way that you won't be ashamed when I come back. Jonathan Edwards wrote a bunch of resolutions for his life. One of them says this, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would be not, not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. He's saying, I don't want to be caught up doing something that I would be ashamed of if Jesus came back. Friends, would you be embarrassed if Jesus came back tonight? Would you be embarrassed by your life and your priorities and how, what you've placed is important? The Daily Bread once carried a story of a traveler who came upon a lovely secluded estate in the shore of a lake in Switzerland. The traveler rang at the gate and an aged caretaker invited him in. The caretaker seemed delighted to see another human being and eagerly exhorted him through the, the grounds. And the tourist asked, how long have you been here? And he answered, 24 years. And he followed up with another question. And how often has your master returned to his estate? And he answered, four times. And then he asked, when was the last time? And he said, 12 years ago. I'm almost always alone, and it's very seldom that even a stranger comes to visit me. And the tourist, then amazed and commented, yet you have the garden in such perfect order, and everything is flourishing. 
as if you're expecting your master tomorrow. And the servant quickly corrected him, no, sir, I have it fixed as if he were coming today. Friends, that's the attitude that we should have as Christians. Those that trust in Jesus Christ, he could come back at any moment. Is your life ready? Friends, he could come back today. In fact, years ago, Spurgeon would have a plaque above his door in his office that, that read, perhaps today. Perhaps today, friends. Before we finish this sermon, I would gladly go to heaven and not have to finish the sermon to rejoice and see Jesus. He continues in verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. See, being asleep should be taken as a metaphor for not paying attention to the task that we have. And too often our activities and priorities in life indicate that we're not paying attention to the imminent return of Jesus. And, and thus we're not anticipating it. To be awake for Jesus' return is to be engaged in serving him in a trustworthy way. And this is added to the distractions of anxiety and fear that we looked at last week earlier in chapter 12. And now Jesus is adding the danger of falling asleep. Our danger with material goods is that we get so preoccupied with them that we forget the Lord and that we have little time for spiritual fellowship or, or any time to serve him. And the question is, are, are we awake? Or are we slumbering with these things? Have we been lulled to sleep with all that the world offers us? And Jesus is excited for his return. He wants, to, to, wants us, he wants us to sense how delighted he is when his servants are fully focused on his coming. He says, truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. When the master comes, he says, the master will serve his servants. And we see this before Jesus' death, right? When he washes the disciples' feet. So we see it already applied. But how astounding that is. Friends, the, the Lord is coming back again, and when he returns, it's to get his servants and to take him to his kingdom. And when he comes back, it will be to judge those who do not trust and follow him. We're to stay awake, actively watching with our lives for our, our Savior to come. And then in verse 39, he says, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into you. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus' disciples are like those who have received a tip-off that the master is returning. They should be awake and ready. Jesus often prepared his disciples for things in advance, and he taught them many things they didn't fully understand until his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And this would be one of the greatest lessons, though, even that Jesus would teach them and, and, and point to that future of his death and rising again, and he would be coming back for his people. It's been... Almost 2,000 years since Jesus said he would return to this world. And some have given up expecting his return. His second coming is the next big event in salvation history. It's one of the main promises in the New Testament. But there's some, there's many, in fact, and people today that treat God haphazardly. They take advantage of the time God is giving them to repent 
And they constantly put God off. They abuse the good things God has given them by squandering their resources on themselves and their families. They are not faithful in serving Jesus Christ. and They're not ready for his return. I recognize this morning in a group this large, they're usually someone who's not trusted in Christ. Perhaps you've taken God for granted. Perhaps you're living haphazardly, hoping that you have plenty of time to figure it all out and to choose Jesus when you want. But it isn't true. You don't know how much time there is in this world, and you don't know how much time you have in your life. And it's arrogance to believe that you can outsmart God about his timing. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait until tomorrow. You might not get that chance. If you've neglected God, it could be because of ignorance. It's probably because of arrogance. And now you have discernment to listen to this message. And the great message that you need to hear this morning is that we were made to know God. We were made to have relationships with God. And we've separated ourselves from God by our sin, by our refusal to listen to truth, by our refusal to live by truth, by our refusal to acknowledge Jesus. And we, we deserve God's judgment by the way that we've lived our lives, by those secret sins that no one knows. And the attitudes of self-sufficiency, the thoughts of pride that dominate our minds. And we rightly deserve God's judgment of us. But God, in his great love in Jesus Christ, has come and lived a life deserving no punishment. And Jesus took our sins upon himself on the cross. The sins of all those from every nation who repent and believe in him. And now he calls us to repent and to believe and trust in him, to turn from our life that ignores God and turn to him in faith. And so, friend, do that this morning. Don't let this day end until you've trusted in Jesus. Come talk to us. We'd love to sit down and talk about the scriptures with you. You don't know how much longer you have. And, and we as Christians, we don't know the day or an hour that Jesus is going to return. But we know two things. First, we know Jesus is coming back. Amen? Second, his coming is closer today than it was yesterday. Every tick of the clock, we're moving closer and closer and closer to Jesus' return. Now, it may be another 100, 200, 1,000 years we need to be ready for his return at any moment. And these matters are, are serious for us to consider, friends. Do we believe that Jesus is coming soon? Or do we live as if he's delayed? Are we using our possessions for the good of others and for the glory of God? Or are we careless in our stewardship, using it mainly for our own benefit? Are we teaching others the grace of God or are we silent about our faith? Friends, the king is coming. We need to stay awake. Second, the king is coming. Get ready.
This was exciting teaching, and the disciples' minds, I'm sure, were reeling at the implications. And so Peter asked the question here in verse 41 of what they're all thinking. He says, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And Jesus' answer that we'll look at revealed that the parable was for the 12, but for all of his disciples, and then for others who will subsequently exercise authority over God's people, I believe. He says in verse 42, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. In simple English, the servant of Christ who has been faithful in his temporary earthly responsibilities will at Christ's return be given a vast permanent authority in eternal state. Excuse me. If we are found faithful as a steward with this little in the, in the world and life that we've been given, then he will make us faithful with many things in the next world and life. The steward, <clears throat> the wise manager, was still a servant, but he's responsible to provide whatever rations the other servants needed, and to that end he was entrusted with the master's good. A famous example from the scriptures is that of Joseph and his promotion to the head of Potiphar's house in Egypt in the book of Genesis. And the general principle is that faithful servants gain their master's reward. As wise managers of God's house, the apostles were entrusted with the responsibility of feeding God's people, God's word. And in time, the sacred trust was passed to other men, the elders of the church. And so while this example is is applied rightly to all of us as Christians, I believe there's a specific application to those that hold the office of elder. My brother, my elders that are here that serve with me, we're going to be held accountable for our leadership of God's flock. How are we doing at managing and leading God's people? Are we faithful and wise? And do we take it seriously? Are we dedicated to the task to shepherd God's people to live in accordance to God's word? How are we demonstrating it in our lives? Church, are you praying for us? I'll be real selfish. We need your prayers. As elders, we need you to pray for us and pray that we would be faithful and wise in our service to you, the church family. He continues in verse 45, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and on an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did not and did what deserved and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating everyone to whom much is given of him much is required and from him to whom they entrusted much they will demand the more in verses 45 and 46 Jesus is describing here an extreme and clear case because if someone constantly and consistently behaves in unchristian ways he's he's really not a true believer First John 3.10, by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And what does he mean here? What does Jesus mean when he says he will cut him in pieces? 
I believe this should be understood figuratively. If it were meant literally, then it would be really hard to understand how the servant then could be assigned to the unfaithful, the unbelievers. When a servant uses here the master's delay as an excuse for self-service and betrayal of trust, the master will judge and punish on his return. And behavior like this suggests the servant truly wasn't Jesus' disciple at all. Friends, there will be a line of church members and Sunday school teachers and VBS workers and pastors on that final day who were never Christians to begin with. And they displayed it in their life. We need to be aware of this. And in verse 48, we learn that judgment is according to knowledge. The more knowledge we have, the greater our responsibility, the greater our guilt if we fail to live in accordance to what we know to be true. The worst punishment will be for those who have the most knowledge and refuse to do it. And this should be alarming to those that lead and serve in the church. It seems that the ones he's speaking to are those that have a religious knowledge but choose not to obey. He says they will receive a severe beating. But even those who are ignorant will receive a punishment. It'll be less severe though. So what are we doing with our religious knowledge? See, religious knowledge even of the future that we see in the scripture, changes the way we live in the present. And places of leadership usually offer unusual temptations to the abuse of others and misuses of power. And leadership positions in the church are not exempt. The leader whose behavior is based on faithfulness and not on calculations as to the Lord's return will be blessed. It's easy to do what is right when you know that you'll be held accountable for your actions, but real faithfulness and integrity are demonstrated by doing the right thing even when it doesn't seem that there'll be consequence for doing the wrong thing. And all that, I believe, is the servants show their true colors by how they act when they don't expect the master's return. It's not the servant who is found wishing and professing, but the servant who is found doing whom Jesus calls blessed. And if you're concerned that we might be preaching the gospel of works, be rest assured that we're not talking about justification here. How we can be made right with God. No, we're talking about sanctification. We're not talking about faith, but holiness. And the point is not what should we do to be saved, but what should we do once you're saved? How should you live? He ends that section there in verse 48 of a proverb. Everyone to whom much is given of him, much is required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This proverb is true in every arena in life. I mean, this, this works in your workplace, doesn't it? In your homes, in your communities. But how much more is it applicable to the church? And friends, we have so much right now as the church. We have the Bible. Old Testament and New. We have 2,000 years of church history. We have abundant preaching. Just go on YouTube this afternoon. There is so many good teachers and preachers. We have Christian education. We have Christian resources coming out of our ears. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of books. We have so many opportunities to learn and grow in our knowledge of God and the Bible. Much is required of us, friends. We will not get to the end and say, I didn't have an opportunity. 
God knows how much we have. And what are we doing with that? How are we learning and applying it to our life? Christians, those that attend worship services each week, are, are, we, are we ourselves living as if we're ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ? As Christians, we should not only believe in Christ and love Christ, seek to serve Christ, but we should also long for Christ's return. So the king is coming. We need to get ready. Third and last, the king is coming. Expect trouble. As we come to this last section, verses 49 through 53, there are two images here, two governing images. Baptism, which we will see as a reference to the passion into which Jesus will soon be plunged into. And the other picture is fire, which symbolizes judgment and purification. He says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. This is possibly a refiner's fire that will purify. Jesus also longed for the completion of his mission. He longed for holiness and justice in this world. And you can hear it in his words. Look at verse 50. I, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus here is, is speaking about his baptism into death by crucifixion the fiery trial he will go through when he suffered the wrath of God against our sin on the cross. And he's saying, I, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it's completed. He, he was baptized by John in the Jordan, but he would now undergo this own baptism by fire on the cross. And he would receive God's judgment for our sins. And the word distress here shows the anguish of our Savior's soul as he anticipated but he would suffer for our salvation. And what we learn from this is the cross was costing Jesus something even before he was crucified. It, it weighed heavily on him. He, he knew what terrible anguish was waiting for him. But the distress of this anticipation was only temporary. And Jesus was able to look beyond it to accomplish our salvation. He would drink the cup of God's wrath do our sin on the cross. And with every passing day, he had a growing sense of the urgency about the great work that he must do. And he was already suffering for it. But he wasn't shrinking back from it. Now Jesus pushes into it. Friends, you need to remind yourself this morning that all of Christ's sufferings on our behalf were endured willingly and voluntarily and by his own free choice. He did not begrudgingly go to the cross. He didn't go to the cross because the Father made him. Jesus wasn't dragging his feet. He lived a humble life for 33 years because he loved us. He died a death of agony with a willing, ready heart to purchase his church. Jesus stands before his disciples and says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. And a short time later, having the, made the triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, he says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And in the garden, he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And on the cross, having become sin for us, he called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. How exalted our Savior was in this pre-cross reality check here. He, he longed to bring fire on the earth, to bring justice and holiness. He wished that the fire was kindled. But he had first to undergo the baptism of death on the cross. He first needed to be immersed in our sins. And Jesus is saying, I, I can't wait to get this done. Jesus is charging headlong to the cross. He's racing to save us. And then he lays out now here at the end of this section the sobering reality for all his disciples, the, the results of the cross of salvation. He says in verse 51, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. There will be a d- divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Friends, following Jesus in a fallen world will involve suffering for his children. Following Jesus in faith might upset your family relationships. Our allegiance to Jesus will bring conflict in this world. Allegiance to Jesus was to be absolute and would lead to a change in relationships. And we see this so clearly exemplified in our families. From some seated here, by some choosing to follow Jesus and others refusing to do so. And friends, I'm here to tell you, Jesus is worth it. He is worth the strife. Some may say, doesn't doesn't Jesus want to bring peace to this world? And he does bring peace. Peace comes for those that accept Jesus and live for him. Jesus didn't come to unify all people under some generic banner of peace. No, his coming and his preaching was about our need to turn from our sins and to trust in him. And that would bring division. It would bring pain to people. It would separate people. And Jesus came to redeem a people for himself, people from every tribe and nation and race. And that would bring unity. And the unity he does bring is the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. The unity in the gospel. I've never been a part of a completely unified family. In fact, I've never seen a completely unified family. I've seen glimmers, I've seen bits of it, but never seen it completely. And the pain of families divided by Christ is very real. But following Jesus is worth the pain. And to help us, Jesus doesn't leave us there in the pain of our families As some follow him and some do not, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, decided to give us a new family. He formed a new family. It's the church. A family that lasts for all eternity. This this family united around Jesus Christ. And there's still temptations to break the unity of this church. 
especially now in the uneasy time of COVID and masks and vaccines and how we should or shouldn't submit to the government. But friends, we're to call, we're called to stay unified as a church family in Jesus Christ. And when churches divide for carnal reasons, they identify themselves with something other than Jesus Christ. They become the church of modern music or the church of this pastor or that pastor or the church of homeschoolers or Christian schoolers or the church of Republicans or the church of no masks. And as soon as this happens, they're no longer the church of Jesus Christ. And although that church may be unified under this issue, that unity is not true Christian unity. It's a worldly unity. And it won't last. And it won't satisfy. We are to love one another. To serve one another. To pray for one another. And we're to overlook those differences that are not about the gospel. We're to pray fervently for one another. That's what will unify as a church. Jesus is what unifies us as the church. That's why we covenant with one another. It sets us apart from others. And we're a church family under the banner of Jesus Christ. Church membership is not like Costco's membership where you pay a fee and get your card. Church membership is a commitment to one another to love each other, to develop relationships with one another, to encourage one another, and to help one another follow Jesus Christ. So if you've regularly attended, even for years, and have never officially joined, I pray that you would prayerfully consider joining our church family so that we can know you better, we can help serve you, and you can help serve others and love others. Jesus says here, you know, the world will not go easy on Christians. And so for, because of that, friends, we need a family. Your family might want nothing to do with you if you're following Jesus Christ. And so this church family becomes all the more important as we move each day closer and closer to Christ's return. Friends, we will suffer. We will suffer for what we believe and who we follow. But friends, we can suffer together. We can encourage each other in that. Well, we've had a full service. I know, lots of going on, lots to think about. I won't belabor anymore. And honestly, even as we, we end this time and look forward to the next week, I'm excited for the next few months at Edgewood Bible Church. God is working in our midst. He's using situations and changes here to increase our, our ministry in this body, in our neighborhood, and I'm excited for what the Lord's gonna do. And God is blessing us, and we want more people to join in in what we're doing here. So let me ask here just one quick question as we're done. And, and the whole scope of what we looked at here, what is distracting you from following Jesus? Are you ready to serve him? Are you ready to, to sacrifice and to give your time and energy and money to serve him? Are you ready? See, Jesus is a zealous savior and zealous savior ought to have zealous disciples. Let's pray. Father, we, we believe this morning and we say together that we recognize Jesus is coming back and we long for that day. 
Even though many in our world have long forgotten or have never heard, we know and we can't wait. Help us to take hold of your word and to live it out in this world. Help us to love you and to love others well. Help our church to grow together, unified, as we study the word, as we encourage one another, as we pray for one another. Help us to be centered around the things that truly matter. Help us to be faithful to you to the very last moment of your return. Help us to follow you. And we do ask, God, that you would send Jesus soon, perhaps today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.